Welcome to Barry Pirro's Haunted Happenings Podcast, where I share in-depth stories of the paranormal, the supernatural, and the unexplained. So turn off your lights, sit back, and prepare to be scared. Stories of ghosts and other spirits can be found in every culture and the belief in ghosts goes back thousands of years. In ancient Egypt, provision was made for the soul to return and visit the earth. When a living person actually saw a ghost, it was considered a sign that the natural order of things had been disturbed in some way. But stories of poltergeists, the type of ghosts that are responsible for physical disturbances such as loud noises and objects thrown around, seem to have surfaced over the past four centuries. Some of these cases had a profound effect on those who lived through them. One such case occurred in England in the early 1700s. It centered around the Wesley family. Now, if the name sounds familiar... John Wesley was the founder of the Methodist Church. When John was just 14 years old, his family was plagued by poltergeist activity in their home in Epworth, Lincolnshire, England. The Wesleys referred to the spirit as Old Geoffrey, and he was active in their home for about eight weeks during December 1716 and January 1717. Most members of the family actually wrote about their experience with the entity at some point in their lives. Two servants were the first to hear Jeffrey's groanings and knockings in the dining room. After this, the Wesley children began hearing those strange sounds, as well as the sound of footsteps, rattling chains, horns being blown, and wood being sawed. There were also accounts of furniture that moved about the room on its own accord. Once, a bed that was occupied by John's older sister Nancy actually levitated off the floor in full view of witnesses. Suzanne Wesley, John's mother, wrote about her first encounter with the poltergeist. She said, There was such a noise in the room over our heads, as if several people were walking, then running up and down stairs, that we thought the children would be frightened. Within a few days, everyone in the house was experiencing the phenomena except John's father, Reverend Samuel Wesley. He thought that the stories were nonsense, and he blamed the family members and servants for telling tall tales. But soon, he too began having encounters with old Jeffrey. One night, after being awakened by knocking, Samuel searched the house for the source of the sound, but he came up empty-handed but I guess the experience made a believer of him because he spoke out loud to the spirit, saying, Thou deaf and dumb devil, why dost thou frighten these children? Come to me, come to my study, I am a man. Old Jeffrey responded that night with even more knockings. The following evening it slammed the door of Samuel's study just as the reverend was opening it. Later that same night, Samuel said that he felt someone pressing down on his chest while he was lying in bed. The Wesleys bought a large mastiff, hoping to scare the ghost away, but the dog was terrified. 
It whimpered and hid under the table whenever Jeffrey manifested. The poltergeist activity eventually faded away over a period of eight weeks, then stopped altogether. While the Wesley poltergeist is interesting because of its connection to the founder of the Methodist Church, it's not the oldest poltergeist case on record. That distinction goes to a case known as the Glenluce poltergeist. In 1685, Scottish minister and mathematician George Sinclair wrote a book called Satan's Invisible World Discovered. Although the book was primarily about witchcraft, it also included the first published account of a poltergeist case. The incident took place in 1654 at the home of a weaver named Gilbert Campbell in the small village of Glenluce, Scotland. In October of that year, a beggar named Alexander Agnew was refused a handout by Campbell. In retaliation, Agnew put a curse on the family. One October day, Gilbert went into his shop and found that some of the tools he used in his weaving trade were broken. He was puzzled by this, as he was the only one who worked in the shop. A few days later, he found that some of his other tools had large gashes across them, as if some sharp object had cut them. But once again, he was unable to figure out who was doing this. The damage to his tools continued until the middle of November, at which time the Campbell home started to be attacked by invisible hands. One day, several members of the family were sitting in the parlor. It was a warm day, so the windows and the front door were open. Suddenly, several large stones were thrown into the windows and through the door. Gilbert jumped up to investigate, but there was no one on the property. Then the family became alarmed when stones began falling into the fireplace, as if someone was on the roof throwing them down the chimney with great force. Once again, Gilbert ran outside. He looked up at the roof, but no one was about. Luckily, no one was hurt by the flying stones, but the family were perplexed by the strangeness of these events. A few days later, Gilbert went into his shop and discovered that the work he had been doing on his loom had been cut to pieces. He also discovered that the reed he used to keep the threads straight on the loom was broken to bits. A few days later, various family members began noticing that their clothing had been cut as if by scissors. At first it happened to the clothing that was stored in drawers or chests. But soon, cuts began to appear on their clothing while they were wearing it. Coats, bonnets, and shoes were all inexplicably slashed and ruined. Mysteriously, no one was ever harmed when the clothing was cut while they were wearing it. Over time, the poltergeist activity in the home became more and more aggressive. The family members were physically attacked. They would feel their skin pricked as if by pins. At night, when they were trying to sleep, something would rip the blankets and linens from the bed. One source said that some of these nightly attacks left them totally naked, which suggests that the nightclothes that they had worn to bed were being pulled off of them as well. In addition to the nightly attacks, chests and trunks would open and close on their own, and the contents would be thrown about the room. Then, items began to go missing from around the house. Sometimes they would turn up right where they had been left. Other times they would be found hidden in odd places. 
Some were household items, others were tools from Gilbert's weaving workshop. The activity got so bad that Gilbert moved the majority of the family's belongings to a neighbor's house to protect them from being cut or hidden. The book said, and I'm quoting here, that Gilbert Campbell was compelled to quit the exercise of his calling, whereby only he maintained his family. In other words, his weaving loom and tools had been destroyed to the point where he could no longer work to support his family. As the situation continued to deteriorate, Gilbert decided to conduct an experiment. He wanted to see if the trouble was aimed toward the entire family or if it was centered on a particular family member. So he asked his neighbors if each of his children could stay in a different house to see if the activity followed any of them. The experiment lasted five days, and in that time, none of the neighbors who took the children in experienced poltergeist activity in their homes. One by one, Gilbert's children came back, and all was well until his teenage son Thomas came home. The following day, the house caught fire and was put out by neighbors coming home from church. A week later, the house was again set on fire and put out by the help of neighbors. Gilbert approached the local minister to ask if Thomas could stay with him. The minister agreed, but as soon as Thomas moved in with him, he too started to experience the same phenomena of clothing being cut and items going missing. Gilbert was persuaded to take Thomas back into his house, but when the boy arrived home, he said that he heard a voice speaking to him. The voice said that Thomas was forbidden to enter a house or any place where his father was. The boy went against this voice and went back home, but he was physically attacked by some unknown force, so he returned to the minister's house. It's unclear from the written account whether Thomas returned home after this or if he continued to live with the minister. Either way, the paranormal activity at the house continued. One day, the exterior of the house came under attack. Pieces of the turf roof and shingles from the sides of the house were torn off and thrown about the yard. All the while, the strange activity inside of the house continued. The family's clothing continued to be cut, and things vanished, only to turn up in odd places. The poltergeist activity took a bizarre turn on February 12th, when the entire family began to hear a voice. They couldn't tell which direction this voice was coming from, but they had a conversation with it that lasted from the early evening until midnight. It was said that the conversation contained many, and I'm quoting here, idle and impertinent questions without due fear of God that should have been upon their spirit under so rare and extraordinary a trial. In other words, the family should have been afraid that this voice was evil, but for some reason they weren't. It also implies that they were somewhat entertained by the voice rather than afraid of it. When the minister heard of this, he thought that the voice that they heard must surely have come from the devil himself. So he went to the house, accompanied by several other members of the church. When they arrived, the voice started speaking to them. At first, it sounded as if it was coming from under the floorboards. Then, it sounded like it was coming from under one of the beds. Accounts say that the voice spoke in the proper country dialect, which means that it must have sounded like the voice of a regular person. 
The voice said to the minister, Would you like to know the witches of Glenluce? It then gave the names of various people from the town who it said were involved in witchcraft. One of the men present pointed out that one of the people mentioned had died several years earlier. The voice answered, It is true she is dead long ago, yet her spirit is living with us here in the world. After the minister left, things were no better in the house, so Gilbert asked that all of the members of the church pray for him and his family, and from April until August, the activity gradually decreased and eventually stopped altogether. But unfortunately, this wasn't to last. In August, the family once again found their clothing cut, and their food began to disappear. Meat was taken and hidden in holes by the doorposts, under the beds, under blankets, and even among their clothing. At last, all of the meat was taken away until there was nothing left to live on but bread and water. After this, the poltergeist unleashed his full malice and cruelty against everyone in the family. It exhausted them at night by moving through the house so that they had no rest from the noise. After this, the family began hearing terrible roarings and terrifying voices at night so that no one could sleep, and something that sounded like a staff would repeatedly strike their bed frames. One day in September, at about midnight, the spirit cried out with a loud voice, I shall burn the house. Four nights later, one of the beds was set on fire. The fire was extinguished, but the bed was destroyed. The family's personal belongings continued to disappear or were discovered hidden away in odd places. Things got so bad that the family was starving because all of their food would be hidden from them. This seems to tie into the curse that the beggar, Alexander Agnew, had put on the family. They had given him no food, and now they were starving. Although the story sounds a little like a sermon, the moral being you reap what you sow, it does have all of the classic signs of poltergeist activity. The Glenluce poltergeist case is unique in that it's blamed on a curse, and the voice that was heard by the family and members of the community seemed to suggest that there was a demonic element to the haunting. But all of the other activity puts it squarely in the category of a poltergeist. Sometimes poltergeist activity occurs when someone is going through a period of emotional turmoil, as if repressed emotions like depression or rage literally break loose and cause havoc on the physical world around them. Such is the case with our next poltergeist story, The Great Amherst Mystery. One of the most frightening and widely publicized poltergeist cases occurred in Amherst, Nova Scotia, where in 1878 an unseen entity tormented a girl and her family for a full year. The intense paranormal activity was witnessed by neighbors, scientists, clergymen, doctors, and investigators. Poltergeist activity often centers around an adolescent. In the Amherst case, it was 19-year-old Esther Cox. Esther lived in a cottage with her family and a few other relatives. One day, the girl claimed that she had been sexually assaulted by a family acquaintance. Little is known of what became of the attacker, but after the event, Esther's behavior changed dramatically. 
She was so depressed that her sisters said that she often cried herself to sleep. Shortly after the molestation, Esther and her sister Jane began to hear strange rustling sounds in the room they shared. The sounds seemed to be coming from under the bed, but when they went to investigate, there was never anything there to account for them. After this, Esther became physically ill, but this was no ordinary illness. For several nights, her body swelled up to such a size that she felt as if she was about to explode. Her temperature would range from sweltering hot one minute to freezing cold the next. The girl's body also went into spasms, and at times she would fall into a trance. During this state, she would say things that she would later be unable to recall. In addition to the strange rustling sounds and Esther's mysterious illness, physical manifestations began to occur around the girl. The pillows and blankets would repeatedly fly off of her bed. Family members would replace them, but they would immediately be pulled off again. Next, writing began to appear on the wall above Esther's bed. One message said, Esther Cox, you are mine to kill. The rustling sounds under the bed were soon replaced by loud sounds that some described as sounding like claps of thunder inside of the house. These deafening sounds were also heard on the roof. Esther's mysterious physical ailment eventually went away, but the activity began following her wherever she went. Once, when she was attending a church service, loud rapping and knocking sounds were heard inside of the church. Although Esther sat toward the back of the building, the loud knocking and banging sounds came from the front rows. The cacophony grew in intensity until it became so loud that it was impossible for anyone to hear the service. Knowing that she was the cause of the disturbance, she left the church and the knocking immediately stopped. Esther was eager to find the source of the problem. Spiritualism was growing in popularity at the time, so she decided to consult mediums. Unfortunately, none were successful in contacting any spirits, so she took the matter into her own hands by experimenting with automatic writing. Now, if you're not familiar with this form of spirit communication, it involves holding a pencil or a pen and allowing a spirit to take control of it. It was by this method that Esther contacted a spirit who claimed to be Maggie Fisher, a girl who attended the same school as Esther, but who had died in 1867. Esther had not known Maggie Fisher, but she was aware that they had gone to school together. Through automatic writing, other ghosts came forward. One was a 60-year-old shoemaker named Bob Nickel. Another was Mary Fisher, the sister of Maggie Fisher. Other ghosts identified themselves as Peter Teed, John Nickel, and Eliza McNeil. It's not known if the Cox family supported Esther's spiritual dabblings, but we do know that they called a doctor in to see if he could help. Dr. Carrite became the next witness of the poltergeist activity. He heard the loud claps of thunder coming from under the bed, he saw the mysterious writing on the wall, and he heard the loud knocks that responded to questions that were asked of the ghost. He also heard the thunderous sounds on the roof that he described as sounding as if someone was banging on the roof with a sledgehammer. 
One of the most common occurrences in poltergeist cases is the movement of objects by unseen hands, and there was no shortage of this type of activity in the Cox household. Objects moved by themselves, flew through the air, or materialized out of thin air. Some household items would disappear from one location and reappear in another. Later, fires began to erupt without warning in the house. Esther began hearing voices, and she claimed that she could actually see the entities that were tormenting her. Because the activity was so frequent and so terrifying, the family decided to move Esther out of the house. She was taken in by a local family, but the poltergeist followed her. While Esther was working in the family's restaurant, patrons witnessed many amazing and frightening things. One of the most horrifying was when a knife flew through the air straight at Esther and stabbed her. After it was pulled out, it flew back again into the exact same wound. The Amherst poltergeist was investigated by scientists, doctors, and clergymen, and many witnessed the strange happenings firsthand. One well-known reverend witnessed a bucket of cold water that was sitting on the kitchen table begin to boil. In later years, Dr. Edwin Clad, a Baptist clergyman, gave lectures saying that the case was authentic and that Esther was not causing the manifestations herself. In June of 1879, investigator and author Walter Hubble spent six full weeks in the home in order to document the case. In that time, he witnessed many alarming, violent paranormal events that occurred around Esther. In his book, The Great Amherst Mystery, Hubble included the affidavits of 13 witnesses who swore that they witnessed the paranormal events outlined in the book firsthand. In June, Esther decided to try and turn her misfortunes to her advantage by going on tour. She hoped that by telling her story to large audiences, she could make back some of the money her family had lost during the ordeal and to possibly make a living from the income. She was assisted by Walter Hubble, the author who documented the case. Although the first few performances were well attended, the crowds were skeptical. One evening, a rival theater owner began heckling Miss Cox from the audience. The crowd joined in and a riot broke out. As can be imagined, it was the last time that Esther Cox was on stage and the tour came to an abrupt end. While she was working for a man named Arthur Davison, his barn went on fire and burnt down. He accused her of arson and she spent a month in prison. After she got out of prison, the poltergeist activity continued, but it slowly began to fade away until it stopped altogether in 1888. The most fascinating thing about historic poltergeist cases is that the activity reported hundreds of years ago is the exact same as it is now. Stones and other objects materializing out of nowhere, strange knocking sounds, fires, blankets being ripped off of beds. And keep in mind, the world was a much different place in the 17th and 18th century. Word didn't travel the way it does today, so the possibility that someone was purposely duplicating paranormal events that they had heard about is slim. 
In addition, people weren't eager to be the center of attention, especially when you consider the importance of religion at the time. No one would purposely make up this type of activity because they would run the risk of being branded as a witch, or at the very least, being excommunicated from their church. In our next episode, I'll explore the most famous poltergeist case in modern history, the Enfield Poltergeist. Until then, if you have a poltergeist story you'd like to share, I'd love to hear it. Please drop me an email at the address in the program notes. If you're enjoying the podcast, please follow me and leave a comment. To contact me, use the email address listed in the program notes. I'm Barry Pirro, and this is Haunted Happenings. Thank you.